different kinds of emotions. All of us might look at Miss Thompson. Her name is Florence Owen Thompson. This picture was taken just just off the cuff, really, just very quickly um, in the summer of 1936. She and her family, like many families during the Great Depression, had lost everything. They'd been displaced. They're at a migrant camp in California on a pea farm there to pick peas. But an ice storm, a, 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 a freezing rainstorm, had killed all the crops. So there was nothing to pick. Um, and you can go and do some research on Miss Thompson, and, and it, it ends well. There's a picture of her and her three daughters who are there in the picture with her. Um, but I see this picture of this mother, and I see emotion, right? I see a burden. I see maybe despair. I see grief. I see the weightiness of what it means to love and care for people. And it's just, it's just filled with emotion when I look at it. The reason for that is that we worship God who is an emotional God. And being made in the image of God means that we are given emotions. And those emotions are a part of who we are as human beings. And today in our text, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the emotion that is a part of God's character. Specifically as he talks about the third person of the Trinity, the third person of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 30, I'll read the whole thing in just a minute, that we're not to grieve the Spirit of God. And this may be new to some of us, this idea. This concept is going to be at least foreign to most of us in our daily walk, I fear. It's not something that we really think about too much. And this passage in Ephesians is written to remedy that so that we do think about it, so that it is a part of kind of what we work through as we make decisions. Last week we saw, remember that we saw that our behaviors, our attitudes, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds are done in the context of relationships, right? It's relational. That's the point of Ephesians chapter 4. Really five as well. We live in a sacred relationship within the body of Christ. And every thought, every attitude, every word, every deed has implications. We either are harming or helping everybody else who's a part of the body of Christ. We do that in all that we do within the body and within the culture. We're not independent. And our actions and our attitudes and our words have consequences within the body and outside of the body. So we can help or hurt one another in those ways. And listen, we impact, if you will, an unseen sacred relationship that we have with God himself, with God the Holy Spirit. And while we can see each other, we don't always see him. And, and what... This text, I believe, is showing us that, that this relationship we have with a person, by the way, he's not an impersonal force, okay? He's not Star Wars, the force is with you. He's not Casper, the friendly ghost. 
He is a person. He's the person of the Holy Spirit. And, and our words, our actions, and our attitudes impact that relationship with that person. And so that's, he wants us to see that. He is someone who can be pleased with what we do or grieved by what we do. And we need to think about that. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants us. He's, he's, and he has just said in the text, in fact, let's go ahead and look at our passage, all right? Let's read it together. Just follow along with me as I read in Ephesians chapter 4. I'll start reading in verse, um, let's see, I'll, uh, 24. Now, Paul has already said, Chapter one, excuse me, chapter four, verse one, he says, we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And he gives us characteristics of that walk. He says later on down there in verse 17, that we're no longer to walk as the Gentiles or as those who are outside of Christ do in the futility of their minds. We're not to walk that way anymore. He says later on in verse 24, we're to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So beginning in verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Doing honest work with his hands so that we, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So our behavior, our attitudes, our thoughts, and our actions impact those we see around us and impact this unseen person that we are in a relationship with, if we're in Christ, this, this person called the Holy Spirit. Now, did you notice, or let me point out to you, that there's, there's at work in this, what Paul says, by our words and our emotions, by what we say and what we do, we can also influence, if you will, or give opportunity to another unseen person. He says... Don't give the devil a foothold. He's not seen, but he is real. And our actions, our attitudes, and our words then either benefit or hinder the work of our enemy, just as our actions, attitudes, and words bless or grieve the heart of the Holy Spirit. So one apostle, one, one commentator said the apostle was constantly aware that behind the actions of human beings, invisible personalities are present and active. We need to keep that in mind, church. Behind every action and attitude, there's invisible personalities at work. All right? 
So the central theme, as, as we have seen, is unity and purity. And I think here's what's implied by verse 30. And we're going to look at this for just a minute. Why would we harm or grieve someone that loves us so much and has done so much for us? And I think about it in the context of my relationship with my mother, who's with Jesus. Man, if, if we had just, if I had just thought a little bit, you know, like, now, Gerald, just think through this action and think how it's going to grieve the heart of those who love you so much. Right? I know when I'm young and dumb, we don't think that way. But if we would just think for a minute, now, how is what I'm about to say, do, or behave, how is that going to impact the people who love me the most? Can I suggest to you that most of our lives would be radically different in many ways if we would just think through that, especially in the context of this relationship we have with the Holy Spirit? So the central theme is unity and purity. That God in Christ has reconciled us to himself. He has made us who were formerly separated and alien and hostile both to one another and to him. He has brought us together in what Paul calls one new man. And he has made us new creatures in Christ, he says in 2 Corinthians 5, and has reconciled to himself. And in, in, in earlier in Ephesians we saw he has even adopted us as his children. So we're a part of his family now. And in that sacred relationship, we are called to a new walk. That's what he says in verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Well, we have been called by God into this sacred, glorious relationship. And we're to walk that way. We're to live that way. There's to be a clean break between who and what we once were and who and what we are now. And so that's the message. If you're in Christ today, we're to put off like a stinky set of old nasty clothes. We're to put off the old self, he says in verse 22, which belongs to your former manner of life. It's corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Last week we saw holiness. This key theme is not something that we we slide into by default. The gravity of sin and the gravity of our culture does not take us in the direction of holiness, right? It takes us in the opposite direction. So holiness is something we're called to strive for, even as we recognize that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him, he says in Ephesians chapter 1. We stand before God in the righteousness of Christ, clothed in his holiness, That's who we are, but yet we are still called to work that out daily, regularly in our life. And that's the picture that we have here. And this pursuit of holiness or the lack of it either blesses or hinders or blesses or hurts, grieves the heart of God. Even as I say that, it's hard to comprehend that. But that's what this that's what the scriptures teach us. And so, as we saw, these behaviors that Paul tells us about here are relational. They, co- they, they exist within the context of relationships. They are also behaviors that need to be replaced, right? Put off and put on. And there's a reason for that. 
That reason is based on these biblical theological realities that are before us in this text. And really it boils down to what I read out of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which we will get into next week. We are to be imitators of God as beloved children. Be like your Father. Be like your Heavenly Father. And those characteristics are love, self-sacrifice. He gave himself up for us, it says, as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. So follow with me for just a second as I just recap three or four things that we saw last week. But I want to do it in a different context. Okay? So last week, it was the straightforward headings were like, don't, don't lie. Don't steal. Don't badmouth. Well, this, this week, as we think about those, I want us to do it in the context of verse 30. And you see that in your sermon notes. So the Holy Spirit is pleased or grieved with our truthfulness. I'm not going to go back and read, you know, rehash the whole thing, but the prohibition is pretty straightforward. Don't lie. Be truthful. We're to, we're to replace that lying and that deceit with the truth. Why? Because of the context of our relationship. We are one another in Christ. We are members of the same body. We have been blood-bought and adopted into the same family. So the reason for that is who we are in Christ and the relationship we have with one another. We're not to walk in the darkness of, this, of Satan anymore. We're not, he's the father of lies. That should not characterize us. And our truthfulness either blesses or grieves the Spirit of God. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is pleased or grieved with our anger. All right? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. And, and as we understand that, as I understand it then, last week and this week, we're to put away sinful anger. There's a place for righteous indignation. The problem is my heart has a hard time distinguishing of where that line is and when I cross it. It's a struggle. We're to put away sinful anger. We are to have righteous indignation. There's appropriate anger. There's appropriate God-modeling response to the sin and the hurt around us. If it doesn't do something to us, there's something wrong, right? Right? It should, it should, it should grieve us on one hand and cause us anger that innocent lives are lost daily through abortion. It should grieve us and make us angry. That lives that are made in the image of God, when they get old, are discarded and disregarded. It should, it should do something to us that injustice prevails and doesn't seem to be at all curtailed. Those things. But then we just have to really recognize the propensity we have to hang on to it. I'll touch on that in just a minute. And then it turns into something bad. And so we have to guard that. The Holy Spirit, thirdly, is pleased or grieved by our work ethic. I'm a, man, I got a lot of comments, a lot of response from this last week. Just, just about a, a simple principle, you know. If you're paid for eight hours of work, do eight hours of work. But then, you know, then I, people would say, well, you know, have you thought about how we work with our taxes or don't do our taxes the way we should? You know, what we try to do to get around certain laws and things like that. It seems I struck a nerve with that one, or it seems like the scripture struck a nerve. The prohibition is don't steal, don't be dishonest, work hard, be productive with your hands. Why? Well, it's not about us. We're to work, and we're to work hard so we can be generous, so we can be Christ like 
in our generosity. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit is pleased or grieved with our words. Filthy talk is what the word corrupting talk, or just rottenness. All right, we're to stop bad-mouthing. Rotten, putrefying, corrupt talk is literally what it says. It's a real strong word. And instead, what replaces that? What builds up? What builds up and edifies? What extends grace instead of tears down? And the reason for that is that because the spiritual unity and the spiritual growth of the body of Christ depends on us extending grace in our words, our thoughts, and our actions. And our witness out there extends, depends on that same grace in our words and our thoughts and our actions. We're called to constantly evaluate our walk through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the mirror of the Scriptures, and we're to evaluate that and just ask that question, is what I'm saying, doing, thinking, is this behavior building up or tearing down? It's, it's, it's a third grade lesson. It's a kindergarten lesson. All right? I can te- we can teach this to kindergartners. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. Brian Chappell said this, This imperative and what follows in the next section is far broader than we expect or even like, he says. Christians are not allowed to say whatever we desire simply by rationalizing that we're not cussing or becoming coarse. We're not even allowed to fall back on some category of neutrality and rationalizing what we say, as in, well, it doesn't hurt anyone, so it's all right to say it. The Apostles' standard, Chapel says, is that if it does not build up and benefit, then it is not worthy to be said. This is the standard not only for our family conversations, but our public discourse as well. So the Holy Spirit is, is, is pleased or grieved by our words. Now, let's look at the, the, the verse that ends this section, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit. That Spirit, He is pleased or grieved by our attitudes. Our attitudes. Notice what it says. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. That's the prohibition, okay? These things are to be put away. And many commentators see this as a progressive list. It's like if you hold on to one and allow it to develop, it's going to lead to the next one. And I think there's some, there's some truth in that. I think that's accurate. I think it's okay to do that. This idea of bitterness, he says, put this away. Bitterness is this attitude that, that is unwilling to let something go. I'm just going to hang on to it. And it's going to develop in our hearts this sourness, this bitterness, this unwillingness to, uh, to reconcile. All right? It's like an infection. And it just, before long, gets nasty. And that's bitterness. That leads to, it seems, or at least is connected to, Wrath and anger, or rage and anger, as the ESV says. This rage or wrath is the explosion that comes from the tender underbrush of the attitude of anger. Think about forest fires, wildfires sweeping across the landscape. Well, they sweep across that landscape because of the dryness of the the underbrush, right? And that's the attitude, that's that emotion of anger. And when it's festering and drying and so brittle underneath, it doesn't take much for it just to go, pow, 
pow, just explode. And that's the idea behind this wrath and this anger. It's just this dry underbrush, this powder keg just waiting to blow. And it results in this brawling and slander. The, the word clamor there is what the some versions call. And, and it's the word that literally means a, a, a bird's, a, a raven or a crow. Just that cry. I thought about that this week. I saw this picture in the Wall Street Journal following the, the leak from the Supreme Court. And so you've seen the protesters, but the journal, the Wall Street Journal did a great job in catching the emotion of that, the, the clamor, okay? It just means a loud public raging. And here's this picture of these pro-abortion demonstrators and these pro-life demonstrators, and what they had in common was being in each other's face with their mouth wide open. That was the picture. In each other's face with their mouth wide open. There's no conversation going on there. There's no discourse. There's no give and take, and I'm not saying there is give and take to give and take in the abortion question. I'm just saying that that's where it escalates to, right? This, this anger blows up into rage and wrath, and then it's just this public shouting match. And that's what he's talking about. And then he summarizes it, this every form of malice. And, and, and one, one commentator says that this idea of malice is the deep unkindness of the self-centered, Christless heart. Whoa. Paul's talking to the church here. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who he just said were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And this commentator says, now he's describing this action, this characteristic that is the deep-seated unkindness that comes from Christlessness. Wow. There are behaviors that destroy harmony within the body of Christ and destroy our witness in the community. And, and Paul is just kind of summarizing all of them right there, every form of malice. And so here's what Paul's saying. Put off these things. Take them off. Do them away in your life. Don't have them as a part of your life. And instead, he says, put on. Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted. Being forgiven to one another. You know what the problem is with that? They ain't natural to us. These are not natural characteristics to us. When we're born in sin and centered on ourselves, which is how all of us are born, we're not born naturally tenderhearted. We're not born naturally kind. We're not born with a propensity to forgive. And this is what's called to be replaced there. That's what it is to be a new creature in Christ, all right? Those are the characteristics of that old creature that is now made new. If anyone is in Christ, he is now kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. And what's the reason for that? What's the model for that? As God in Christ forgave you. Wow. That's a pretty simple summary, isn't it? How am I supposed to respond to this person? Well, as God in Christ has responded to you, Gerald, 
I'm not sure I can forgive that. Well, as God in Christ has forgiven you, as God in Christ has been kind to you and tenderhearted and compassionate to you, so just think for a second about the very character of God, what it is that we're called to imitate in 5, 1, and 2. Psalm 145 says that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. He's kind, amen? That's, that's who he is. That kindness is designed to bring us to repentance, Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? Praise God for his kindness. It leads to repentance. And it brings us forgiveness. The psalmist said in 130, Yahweh, if you considered sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He is kind. His kindness leads to repentance. His kindness offers us the opportunity to forgive. And his kindness, Paul says in Titus, brings us salvation. When the kindness of God our Savior appeared and his love, he saved us. God is kind. And that kindness leads us to repent. It gives us forgiveness. It brings us salvation. That's grace, right? And that kindness is to be exhibited in the lives of his people. In our words, our actions, and our attitudes. So when our behavior is contrary to that, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that it breaks the Spirit's heart. It grieves Him. And that's a heavy word. right? It's, it's, it's meant to be intense. The language in the original language is really, grieve not the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. So there's an intensity to it. And this whole concept here is meant to grab our attention and grab our hearts. It is meant to call us to recognize the truth of God's grace and goodness to us in the gospel and say, why would we do something that would bring grief to that loving, gracious heart? Think about it, children, God is saying. Think about what you're saying and doing. One commentator said, the thought is meant to arrest us and correct us. The same spirit who convicts my heart of sin generates in me the love of God, gives me new birth, provides me appreciation for the beauty of his grace in the world. He seals me for redemption until the coming of my Lord. That same spirit who loves me so intimately and so perfectly, I can cause to grieve. And not wanting to hurt him is strong motivation for not intending the harm of his people or his purpose. So we need to meet the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, we know, but we don't understand. You, I, know you, I know I don't understand, okay? I won't categorize you with my inability, but I do not understand the Trinity. Okay, it's a mystery of God that is so deep we can't fathom it. But scriptures teach clearly that there is this person of the Holy Spirit who is a part of that Godhead. And, and we know from, from the word in the very beginning, God created the heavens and earth, right? And the earth was without form and darkness. And it says the spirit of God was hovering over the water. So here's the spirit of God there present and in some way moving and working in the creation process. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And the Spirit was at work in that. Spiritually, that's exactly the reality of how we become followers of Christ. 
The Spirit of God hovering. It says in Second Corinthians chapter 4, God who said, let light shine out of, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the same Spirit of God that hovered over the darkness of, of that primordial, whatever it was, hovers over the darkness of that lost, dark heart and opens its eyes, opens my eyes one day, and let me see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the miracle of recreation, just as he was involved in the miracle of creation, right? And that's what the Spirit of God does. So his presence and his power are there then. His presence and his power are there when someone is saved. I've been praying all week that his presence and power would open the eyes of your heart today if you're outside of Christ. So that maybe today for the first time you see glory and beauty in Jesus that you've never seen. That's the Spirit of God at work. The Spirit empowers us. He enlivens us. Jesus promised in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witness. So the Spirit who was hovering over the darkness at creation and God said, let there be light, is the same Spirit who enlivens now, enlightens, if you will, brings life into that one who was once dead, spiritually dead. The same Spirit purifies us. Does that work of purification in us when we're saved and continues to do that work in us? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, and, and as some of you were, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So the Spirit of God purifies us. I just read in John 16, the Spirit of God reveals to us, right? He takes the truth of God and reveals it to us, guides us into all truth. In Galatians 5... The Apostle Paul says that the Spirit of God guides us, guides us daily, regularly, in a supernatural yet practical way. In Galatians chapter 5, we're commanded to walk by the Spirit, and that walk there is our life. And he says later on, if you live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit in Galatians 5.25. So the Spirit of God directs us. I believe he wants to direct us step by step. And we're called to be responsive to that. The Spirit of God unifies us. He binds us together. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul says in Philippians 2, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort for love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Full accord and of one mind. The Spirit of God unifies us. Alright? So He unifies us. He guides us. He reveals. He purifies. It tells us here that He seals us for the day of redemption. That means He marks us as gods. Not gods like God. I mean, we belong to Him. It's a mark of ownership. It's a mark of authenticity. That's what that sealing is. It's the sign that we belong to Him. It's the assurance that the Holy Spirit gives us. It's the guarantee that we belong to Him. And nothing will change that, right? Nothing will change that. That's what He does. So why would we hurt? Why would we grieve a love that deep and a grace that generous? Why would we engage in in anything that would do that. Let me just, we're kind of getting into the application of this. I want to wrap this up by just giving you some scenarios, okay? Just 
These aren't in your sermon notes, and, and I can post them. But let's just think for a minute about what we've thought through and heard through over the last few minutes. He is the Holy Spirit. Now, these are scriptural terms that we see for him, okay? Some of them very explicit, some of them implied. The Holy Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit of truth, right? So why would, why would we grieve him with something untrue or deceitful? Not the whole truth. Why, why would we grieve him in that way? The scripture says he is the Holy Spirit of faith, all right? Implicit in that idea is that what we read in the book of Hebrews is that without faith it's impossible to please God and it grieves the Spirit of God when we're not walking in faith and we're not responding in faith and we're not trusting God, when we doubt, when we're anxious, when we worry. It's grievous to the God who says, I, I'm worthy of your faith. I can handle it. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of grace. We see that throughout the New Testament. And we grieve Him when we are not gracious. When we are hard-hearted. When we're holding on to bitterness. When we are quick to be offended but not quick to forgive. When we are fast to ask for love and expect it, but not quick to give it. We grieve the Holy Spirit of grace. We grieve the Holy Spirit who unifies us when we do something contrary to that unity. When our attitudes, thoughts, actions, or words in some way bring division, bring divisiveness into the body. In fact, when we do that, we're given a foothold to the devil. We grieve the spirit of power. And he is that. He empowers our work. He empowers our witness. Jesus said the spirit will give us the power for that witness. And I believe that we grieve him when we rely on ourselves. The Old Testament prophet said, we're not going to trust in horses and chariots. We're going to rely on the spirit. We're going to trust him. And we grieve the Spirit of God when we say, that's okay, I can handle it. I can do this. When we're in our words or in our actions, self-sufficient and just, you know, we can handle it. And finally, let's not miss this. He is, what kind of Spirit? Holy. Holy Spirit. And we're called to that. And his heart is grieved by our lack of holiness or our lazy pursuit of it. So let me just give you a couple of things to, as applications or just to consider as we just quietly think for just a minute. Is the Spirit of God at work right now in you saying to you what you're hearing is true? And that is the Spirit of God, by the way who says what you're hearing right now is true and you need to act on it. Maybe he's drawing you to Christ now for the first time, to this new life that he alone starts. Oh, I know, maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you've been a member here for a long time. Maybe you've been a member at another church. But what's being pictured before us here by the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, is a new life in Christ. An old self dead and a new self alive. And maybe today the Holy Spirit is really convicting you about the fact that, you know what? 
Where's the newness? Where's the new life? And oh, how sweet it is that His grace extends. He, he doesn't give up on us, all right? He doesn't give up on us. And if you're sensing that right now, then praise God, that's the Spirit of God speaking to you. And I invite you to respond to it. I invite you just to open your heart and say, Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for your grace that is so amazing. And I confess my need. I confess my sin. I want to repent and turn from it. Thank you. Would you just, I'll pray with you in a minute about that. The Spirit of God may be working in you right now in that way. Secondly, Maybe the Spirit of God is working in you as a child of God, bringing grief. Praise God for that. If there's a conviction in your heart right now or mine about that. let me. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 7. And, I'm, and I was praying this this morning early, even in regard to this sermon. Because Paul said, even if I made you grieve by my letter, I do not regret it. So if at the end of the service you say, boy, preacher, you stepped on my toes today, I'll say, praise God, I hope they hurt. I don't regret it. I don't regret offending with the truth. And he says, I don't regret it, <laughs> although I did regret it. So he says, in some ways, because I see my letter grieved you, though only for a while. But listen to what he says in Second Corinthians 7, verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So the grief over sin that leads to repentance is a gift. Praise God if the Spirit of God is working that in our hearts this morning. Maybe it's the seed of revival. Thirdly, is the Spirit convicting you this morning of His displeasure? It's related to that first one. If we can say, oh yeah, I did that, whatever. Oh, that's a hardness of the heart. That's adultery, spiritual adultery. Because we're more in love with the ways of the world than we are with the intimate, holy love that the Spirit gives us. And if the Spirit is convicting you of His, of this, His displeasure in some of these actions, this lifestyle or this behavior, then praise God for it. I was reading earlier this week in Second Samuel chapter 12. Nathan came into the presence of the king. Remember? David, who's just done this thing with Bathsheba, had her husband murdered. And Nathan comes into the presence of the king and he says, You're the man... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? What, what the prophet is saying there to David is God saying to David, I've done all of this for you. Why would you hurt me this way? a question for each one of us today. How could you do this to me? If the Spirit's whispering those words into your heart right now, praise Jesus for it. Praise God. Praise the Spirit for it. 
In our life group this week, we're going to be asking this question. How might we go about evaluating to see if there's any way in us that grieves the Spirit? Well, that's what we've been doing for the last 35 or 40 minutes, is just evaluating what's in our life that might be bringing grief instead of blessing and joy to the heart of God. So, God, we pray you'll finish the work you start. Let's pray now. Lord, your word, you tell us, is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it does spiritual surgery into the very bone, the very marrow of our being. And I just sense, God, that you may be doing that this morning. And I pray that what you find there, Lord, you'll do a work. And that you'll find in us, Lord, we'd be willing patience. Thank you for the healing. Thank you for the forgiveness. Thank you for the grace. Thank you for the kindness and the mercy that you show us. Father, create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit within us. Lord, your servant David in Psalm 51 prayed that you'd not remove your Holy Spirit from him. We know in the new covenant you'll never do that. But we do pray that you'll find us sensitive, soft, and responsive to the way your Spirit speaks into each of our lives. And Father, we pray that for, for the glory of Jesus. We pray that for the, for the effective power and witness of your church. We pray that, Lord, for our unity and our purity. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.